Thank you, Robbie. There we go. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You this morning hungry for Your Word. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Jesus, for what You have claimed and what You have said. And we know it to be true. As we've been looking in John's Gospel, we see Jesus, You claim and You promise to give us life. And we can cling and we can hold to that promise. Our hope is in You, Jesus. I pray this morning, Lord, You can take the distractions out of our heart, out of our minds. I pray that we can focus on Your truth and on Your Word. I pray that I'm led by the Holy Spirit, that it's Your words being preached, and I'm not adding anything to them. Lord, we are thankful for this time that's set apart on Sunday mornings to worship You and to give You glory. I pray that as we continue to worship You through the preaching of Your Word, that You move and that by Your Holy Spirit, hearts will be transformed, hearts will be encouraged, hearts will be convicted. Lord, I pray that we leave here transformed by You and Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I just want to start off by, by, by saying we, I know we have a couple of babies here and that, praise God, that, that's amazing. I am not distracted by that. So if the babies are fussy and making noises, it doesn't bother me. So I just want to give you just a heads up on that. And I'm talking to my own daughter as well on that. So, yeah, she likes to wave at me during the sermons. It's hard to not wave back. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel, going line by line, verse by verse. If you have your Bibles and you were there for the Scripture reading, stay there. That's where we'll be. We're going to be in John chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 60. And I want to give a little bit of a recap because this is the end of the Bread of Life discourse. Really, this chapter, when I was going through my outline of the year, I was like, okay, I'll spend maybe one or two weeks on John chapter 6. We're at about week 4 or 5 right now. So thank you for your patience, but there is so much meat here and there's so much to talk about. I don't want to skip over anything. So what we've missed so far in John chapter 6, there's really been two miracles that Jesus has done. The first is what a crowd of 5,000 plus people were seeking after Jesus because of the miracles that he was doing. And then they found him and Jesus did more miracles for them. He healed their sick. He also preached to them the good news. And then we, we learned that he fed them by multiplying food, the five loaves and the two fish. And because of that, the crowd sees Jesus And they want to make him their conquering king. They say, man, with this Jesus, we don't have to worry about being hungry. We don't have to work. He'll give us food. He'll feed us. Let's go march into Jerusalem right now and conquer the Romans. And we see that Jesus, and we talked about this, he didn't come his first coming as the conquering king, but the lamb who would be slain, the lamb who would die on the cross to save us. And we saw as a result of that, Jesus perceives the crowd's heart. He actually dismisses them. He pushes the crowd away. He actually dismisses himself from the disciples and he's alone on the mountainside. That next day, the crowd is looking for Jesus, but throughout the night, his disciples were on a boat and they were facing a supernatural windstorm in the Sea of Galilee. It was about 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning where Jesus appears to them as the second miracle. He walks on water towards his disciples. At first, they were afraid. I think most of us would be because normally people don't walk on water. But what we see is they take him on the boat and they worship him. They cry out, truly, you are the Son of Man, the Son of God. The next day, the crowd that Jesus dismissed, they find him. They, they search and they go to the town that's across the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and they find Jesus preaching in the synagogue. And Jesus gives his bread of life discourse in that he claims to give life. 
All who come, all who believe in Me will have eternal satisfaction for your soul. You'll have spiritual life. And we see as a result of what Jesus claimed, the Jews were grumbling. They were complaining. They really got caught up on one thing. Jesus said that He came down from heaven and the Jews said, well, wait a minute, Jesus. We know that You're the son of Joseph and Mary. They got caught up on Jesus' location that they, in a sense, their hearts were so hard that they could not accept any more and any further info that Jesus gave them. They were continually grumbling. As the Old Testament Jews or Israelites grumbled when God fed them supernaturally with manna from heaven for 40 years and 40 or 40 years. So here we see the crowd. They're complaining. They're feeding. Jesus is telling them, I have something better to give you than the, the, the manna that God gave to your fathers, the ancient Israelites. And then we see really what we read. And we're going to see that based on how the crowd reacted on Jesus' claims, we're going to talk about the opposite. We're going to look at the marks of a true disciple, a true, a genuine follower of Jesus. So I have to say this because I, I think it's true, and I think most of us would nod our heads and agree. We live in a world today that most Christians, and I'll use a little quote here, most Christians will say that Jesus is their friend. Right? They'll, be, they'll be hesitant to say He's my Lord. They'll say, yeah, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. He taught good morals. But he, He's not God. He's not my Lord. He's not my Savior. They don't mind the Jesus is my co-pilot sticker. Have you ever seen that? The bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot? Right? They, they don't mind Him being their, their co-pilot in life. But don't you dare tell me that Jesus is the pilot and I have to follow Him. Right? No, it's me and Jesus together. That's what these, these Christians, and I would say mostly in America, we, we boiled or watered down Christianity to making Jesus simply our friend. And that's it. Not our Lord. Not our Savior. We keep Him at arm's length away. Jesus, You're good. Jesus, I love You. But let me do it my way. Let me, let, me, let me do it over here. Let me do it the way I want. And, and I'll leave you here. And when I really need you, I'll, I'll come and I'll get you. When I really need your help, I'll, I'll, I'll invite you into my life and work. We see that they treat Jesus nothing more than the same as the crowd that followed Jesus that walked away. They, they were drawn. They like Jesus, but they're not in love with Him as, as a follower. They're not a true disciple. They have shallow faith. And that's what we see in this crowd that's following Jesus. We see their shallowness or the supernatural or super, not, uh, superficial faith that they have in Jesus. Jesus, we want you in our lives, but only when it's convenient. Only when it serves my purpose. Don't get me out of my comfort zone. I don't, I don't know. I'll invite you in when I want you here. I'll follow you, Jesus, but what do I get out of it? Where's my bread? And as we go through this morning, and you have your notes, we're going to look at three marks of what it means to be a true disciple based on how the crowd responds to Jesus and their false discipleship. So number one, true disciples accept Jesus' call. They accept Jesus' call. Let's read verse 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if, we're, what if you were to see the Son of Man descending to where He was before? Let me pause here. Right Before we continue forward, we have to define the term disciple. 
Jesus is talking to the crowd that He fed the previous day, the crowd that's following Him because they wanted even more food from Jesus. We know from the context of of John 6, earlier in this chapter, that these disciples are not true believers. The Greek word here for disciple simply means someone who attaches themselves to a teacher. Someone who clings to a teacher, clings to a rabbi as a student. They put themselves in their their own position to, to be a disciple, to be a learner from Jesus. But this crowd was superficially attracted to Jesus because of the miracles, because of the food that He provided for them. They were unwilling, time and time again, unwilling to believe Jesus, to believe Him as being the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And they haven't chosen to abandon Him yet. That comes later at the end of this chapter. But they're still sort of hanging around Jesus. They're interested. They want to see the divine. They want to see the supernatural. They're drawn to Him, but for the wrong reasons. They want to see something exciting. And in the previous verses, Jesus reveals Himself to be the bread of life that's come down from heaven. He's called His followers. All those who follow Him, He says, eat of His flesh, drink of His blood for eternal life. He's called them to abide in Him, to have a communion, a union with Him. Right? And that's what He's talking about. And the response of the crowd, what's their response in verse 60? They say this, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus challenges the crowd to go deeper with their faith. Instead of following for miracles, for the supernatural, for the divine, Jesus commands a union, a communion, a fellowship with Him. A relationship in which the crowd, in which they abide in Him and Him and they. And the crowd's response is really a hard issue. It's not that they don't understand or they're ignorant or they can't comprehend what Jesus is saying, but rather they don't accept it. They're not accepting it. It's not a brain issue, it's a heart issue. And in the next verse, we see again that Jesus supernaturally knows the crowd's heart. He knows they're grumbling and complaining because of what He said. But still, he again, He cuts right to the point of, of what He's making. He says, does this offend you? Does what I said offend you? Or another way to translate it is, do you give up believing? Is what I said so impossible for you to do that you give up? Does it offend you? Coming down from heaven, giving life, having union with me, being the bread of life, does all that offend you? Then what would you think if you saw me ascending and going back up to heaven? Would even that glory-filled moment change your heart? And we see in the next few verses that the crowd's heart response, or we see their their heart response to Jesus. They don't accept it. They're not willing to have a union with Christ, a full devotion, communion, partaking, abiding in Jesus. As I said, their decision's not out of ignorance, but a hardened and a selfish heart. It's almost like they're thinking, Jesus, we want the miracles, we want the divine, we want the bread every day but we don't want to abide in You. We we don't want to have complete union with You. And I have to ask, because my mind went here, but how does your relationship with Jesus look like? Just think of this application. Do we treat Jesus as a distant relative? Right? Maybe it's someone that we love, but we rarely see. With Thanksgiving coming up, maybe you have all these distant relatives that you always invite over for holidays, but any other day of the year you never talk to them. 
except the week before each holiday to invite them over, right? You might know them, but you don't know them. There's not a deep and intimate connection. Do we treat Jesus as a distant relative? Or do our hearts fully belong to him? Do we have a personal and intimate relationship with him? Do we look to him and pray to him always because we need him like the air we need to breathe? Again, Jesus is not interested in having you following him part-time. Jesus is not interested in having half or a part of your heart. Our call as true disciples is to accept Jesus' call to follow him fully in all we say and we do. This past week, in case you didn't know it, me and Stephanie went up to a YMCA camp up in Silver Bay. It's, it's right off Lake George. And we used this as a mini, a mini sabbatical, a time of rest. And during this time, Stephanie and I had a really good conversation. And for me, it was convicting. She said this, Do we invite Jesus into the decisions we make in our lives? Do we seek to follow Him daily? Do we invite Him into our lives daily? And of course, being a good Christian, I'm like, yeah, all the time, of course I do. And, and she, her call was to, to go deeper and say, no, no, even in decisions that might not seem that important, do we still invite him in and pray and ask for wisdom? Right, and then I got into this little debate where I'm like, Steph, I don't want to, you know, if I'm up to a vending machine and I want a Crunch Bar or a Hershey Bar, I'm not going to pray to God and say, God, which, you know, which chocolate bar do I get? Right, as Christians, we have Christian freedom and Christian liberty. But Stephanie was challenging me and encouraging me to go further and saying, even on my days off, do I say, Lord, use this day off for your glory? Or even with holidays coming up, Lord, what should we do this Thanksgiving? What, what is your call for us to do? And her challenge was to continually invite Jesus in. Pray to God. Ask for wisdom for decisions. A true disciple of Jesus understands their call. They understand Jesus' call. It's a call to a deep, personal, loving relationship with Him. Union with Him. We need to allow Jesus to actively be present in our lives and not just sprinkle Him on top when needed. Right, there's been a lot of times where I'll plan all these different outreach events and then I'll say the night before, okay, Jesus, I, I planned everything. Uh, please, please show up and, and please, I just hope it, it's a successful outreach. And Stephanie's point, she's saying, David, have you been praying before you even started planning? Right? The, the call to invite the Lord into what? Our relationships, our decision makings. So to me, that was convicting. Praise God for my wife. Praise God for our wives. Number one, true disciples accept Jesus' call. The call to what? Abide in Him. Fully commit. Be all in on Him. Not half-hearted, not half-committed. The second thing we see in these verses Number two, true disciples have life. They have life. Verse 63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Let me repeat that. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those, uh, those who did not believe and who it was who betray him. Verse 65, And Jesus said, This is why I've told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We see that our life, life itself is given to us. It's a gift from God. Verse 63, It's the Spirit who gives life. It's not David Moore who gives life. 
It's not the church that gives life. It's not our spouse that gives life. It's not a good teacher that gives life, a good mentor. It's God. Life is given to us by God through the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God. And this verse really echoes what Jesus said to Nicodemus in in John chapter 3. To give a little bit of a paraphrase, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, well, what does that mean? How can I be born again? I'm old. Jesus, uh, how, who can do it? And then my paraphrase, Jesus says, flesh affects the flesh, but spirit affects the spirit. Spirit works for the spirit. And what he's saying, that only God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can spiritually take our dead hearts and what? Pump and bring new life into them. If you want to get a deep theological term, that's the process of regeneration. The Holy Spirit giving us new life into our dead hearts. And if you're here today relying on your own strength, your own righteousness, your own goodness, please listen again to what Jesus said. He said the flesh is no help at all. There's nothing we can do to affect our spiritual goodness or our spiritual place of justification. It's only what Jesus has done through the work of the cross. So who gives us life? God. It's a complete work of God. Again, Jesus claims that His words give life. And I know I sound like a broken record. I know every week for the past three or four weeks I've said, Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. But John's Gospel, as he's writing, he's making a point here. Jesus is making a pretty crystal clear claim. He's the one who gives eternal life. He's the one who satisfies our souls. It's Jesus, not the law, that gives eternal life. That's a callback to John chapter 5. Jesus calls out the Pharisees. He says, you search the Scriptures carefully. You think that in the Scriptures, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, that's where you find eternal life. But Jesus says, it's the law that reveals me. It's the law that points to me, that tells you about me. And then in verse 64, he says, some of you do not believe. He's talking to this crowd of people. Some of, of Jesus' followers here, they continued to reject God's offer of salvation, of life. Again, not ignorance, but a lack of faith. And then we see John adds in parentheses that Jesus knew this from the beginning. That Jesus being God, He knows all. He knows hearts. And then He also adds a little bit of a foreshadow that He knows that even Judas would betray Him. Jesus on the night of this Passover was not like this. Judas, you're betraying me? What have you done? I didn't see this coming. He knew. He knew. He's not taken back even by this crowd's superficial, shallow faith in Him. In fact, He rebukes them over and over and over again in this chapter and calls them to a deeper relationship which they continue to reject. And then again, Jesus says what He did in verse 44. He says, Only those who have been drawn by the Father come to Me. What does that mean? Unless God takes action, no one will ever be saved. There's a well-known quote, and most of us probably have heard it before, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. That God both supernaturally and spiritually draws us to Him, He softens our hearts, but also God does harden our hearts. He hardens hearts and gives unbelievers over to their sin as they continually rebel and reject Him. That's found in Romans chapter 1. They're given over to their sin. We see here that God alone, through the power of of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' words, gives our hearts life. 
There's nothing we do when it comes to the work of salvation. Jonathan Edwards said this, and, and, and I say Robbie, Robbie says this to me a lot of times too, because it's a great reminder. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Think about that. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. We do not boast in our goodness because we add nothing to it. We add nothing to our salvation. We can't boast in it. It's by the power, love, mercy, grace of God. And that's what we talked about last week. And here's a call for us as Christians. Remember. Remember to remain humble. It's really easy to start thinking like the Jews did. I'm God's chosen. I'm God's chosen people. And if shame on you, Gentiles. How dare you? You don't know him. Look how much better I am. Right? There's a lot of times where sometimes our, our selfishness gets in the way. You know, God, thank you that I'm not so bad like this person over there. Or, or you're talking to someone and, and you just you just judge them because they don't know Christ. I would argue this as Christians, remain humble. Remember, there's no boasting in our in our salvation because we've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. But also, we're to pray diligently for unbelievers. Why? Because it's only God that gives them a new heart. We're to pray for gospel opportunities. God does use us for His purpose and for His glory. There's often times where I'm like, man, why can't this person just believe? Or a youth group said, man, they're so close to believing. And then I have to say, wait a minute, have I been praying for them? Have I been praying for their salvation? Why do we pray for people's salvation? Because God alone is the one who does it. I could be the most eloquent street preacher, the, the most wise biblical scholar. I can't change people's hearts. I can't do it. I'm called to give the gospel. I'm called to preach the good news. But let God do what He does better than us, far better than us. Let Him do what only He can do. So again, God does use us for His purpose and His glory. I don't know if you ever shared the Gospel with somebody. Maybe it was a few years, or maybe it was later in their lives, and you see them finally come to Christ. It, it's joyful. Like for me, it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, like you get so fired up. I think that's a gift from God. right? God has changed their heart, and as a result, you get to see the blessing of what God has done. So again, true disciples accept Jesus' call. True disciples have life. And the last point we see here in these verses are true disciples have faith. True disciples have faith. We'll pick up in, in verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve and yet one of you is the devil? Or, sorry, one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Here we see the end result of the crowd. John chapter 6 is the crowd that's coming to Jesus Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are getting drawn to Him. And what do we see at the end result of everything of what Jesus has done and preached and His miracles? They turned back. They no longer walked with Him. Again, these are not genuine followers or disciples. I've got to make that clear. 
Because if you think that they are, then you can point to this verse and say, oh, well, look, you can lose your salvation. These disciples walked away from Jesus. John chapter 6 sets up the whole context that these are not genuine disciples or followers. They're just literal disciples. They're literally, what, clinging to Jesus' teachings and His preachings, but their hearts are far from Him. They don't believe in Him. They don't accept Him as the Son of God. And in their exodus, in their, their mass what, walking away from Jesus, their hearts were truly revealed that they really didn't have faith in Him. They really weren't following Him for the right reasons, but rather their selfish gain. There's a theologian, F.F. F. Bruce, who said this, what the crowd wanted, Jesus would not give. What Jesus offered to them, they would not receive. And I love this, Jesus now, He shifts His attention to the twelve. He shifts it back to the twelve, which, fun fact, this is the first time in John's Gospel where it actually uses the term the twelve disciples or the twelve. So He shifts and He's talking now to the twelve disciples and He asks them, do you want to walk away as well? And we see Peter acting as the spokesperson, the spokesman of the group for all the others with a twofold response. And again, I'm just reading this, but as I'm picturing it, I just picture Jesus speaking, Jesus preaching, and then thousands of people turning away. And as they're turning away, the disciples are like, kind of, maybe, again, Bible, Bible's here and, and my mind's over here, right? Maybe the disciples are like, Jesus, they're going away. What are you going to do? We need to bring them back. What are we doing, Jesus? Look at they're all leaving, right? Maybe they're sad. Maybe they're confused. And I love it. Right, we, we, we pick on Peter a lot. Preachers and, and pastors, they pick on Peter because usually he's the one that you know, sticks his foot in his mouth. He's usually the one that, that says out loud what all the other disciples are thinking or does what he, he probably shouldn't do. But I love it here. Let's give Peter some credit. He gets it right. He gives a twofold response to Jesus. He says this in verse 68, Lord, Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He gets it. The disciples get it. The twelve get it. It's a call to remain faithful to Jesus. It almost reads as this, as Peter saying this, Jesus, we're all in. We've, we've left our jobs. We've left our families. We've, we've put everything behind us. We have nowhere else to go. We're with you to the end. And Peter confesses what Jesus has been claiming. Jesus, you're the way. Jesus, you are the one who has or gives eternal life. We're staying with you. Again, give Peter the credit that's due. His faithfulness in Jesus. And the second thing we see in verse 69, he continues in saying this, and we have believed. There's their faith in Jesus. So they remain faithful and now again, their faith in Jesus. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's faith on full display. Jesus, we believe. Jesus, we trust you. The phrase, come to know, it's actually a little interesting. I looked into it. It translates to something like this. An act that was completed in the past, but with ongoing results. So, as I read that, it's that the disciples' faith was established when they followed Jesus, right, there's the completed act in the past, but they continue to grow and strengthen, deepen their faith in Jesus throughout their time with Him and after His death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. 
And this phrase that Peter uses, it's a little odd. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. He calls Jesus the Holy One of God. I like that phrase, right? A lot of times you hear Son of Man, Son of God. He's the Holy One of God. It's actually mentioned in Mark and and, and Matthew's Gospel account of the same story that a demon-possessed man cried out to Jesus and calls Jesus the Holy One of God. We see here that Simon Peter, he affirms, he speaks on behalf of the twelve. He says, Jesus, we've been faithful to you. We will continue to believe in you. We're not going anywhere. Just because the crowd left, we're not following them. We're following you. We know and believe that you're the Holy One. You're the one that's set apart, that is holy, that you're the Son of God. He acknowledges Jesus' divinity. And then I love this, because this is a little, this, this is interesting. Right? As you're reading this, then Jesus kind of says something back in response to, in, to, to Peter. He says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And I love this, that Jesus even corrects Peter in this moment. Right? Peter's saying we, and he's using language that, that's speaking on behalf of all the twelve. And what do we see? Jesus correcting him. Not all of you affirm me. Not all of you are believing in me. There's a devil, there's a slanderer, accuser among you. And then John, as he's writing this, his gospel, he fills in the foreshadow that it's Judas that Jesus is talking about. And as we end this section, and we really just see from verse 60 to the end of this chapter, there's really three responses to the gospel. The first is rejection. In verse 66, we see that the crowd walks away. They reject Jesus' call. Most of you, I mean, I'm sure if you've ever shared the gospel, this seems to be the most popular response is, is rejection. Right? I don't believe in Jesus being God. I don't believe in that. No way. Maybe Jesus was a real person, but there's no way he died on the cross and rose again. Right? There's rejection to the gospel. The second response is we see acceptance. Or belief. And this is in verse 67 uh, to 69. It's the 12. Peter speaking on behalf of the 12, really 11, but we'll call them the 12. They accept Jesus' call and his claim. It's an acceptance of the gospel. It's a heart that's transformed, a heart that believes. And then the third response we see in this section is apostasy or apostate. Verse 70 to 71, that's talking about Judas where outwardly they might look good, but ultimately they're not willing to follow Jesus. There's a hatred, there's rejection, there's betrayal. A lot of times these will be people who blend in in churches. Who, well, I'll partake in communion because, yeah, why not? I'll come to church. Sure, I love church. I'll raise my hands. Right? I'll, I'll sing. I'll memorize some scripture. But there's no transformed heart. There's this fitting in, right? There's this, they look like they belong, but inwardly, almost as Jesus talked to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, outwardly you look beautiful. Outwardly you look like everything's in order. But inwardly, you're dead. Inwardly, there's a rotten heart, a decaying dead heart that needs life. So you have rejection, acceptance, now called apostasy. And as Christians, we should strive to live out what Peter affirmed. The song that we sang earlier, we believe. That's a creed put to a song. 
that no matter what the world says about Jesus or what other people say, we remain faithful and we continue to believe in His promises. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be perfect and you'll never have doubts, but don't hide them. Bring them to a friend. Bring them to the church. Bring them to a pastor. Bring them to the Lord. Jesus, I'm having doubts. Help me believe. Help me to remain faithful. Right? Continue to believe in His promises. Even when our life gets dark, when our life gets messy, invite Jesus in. Allow Him in. We cling to our hope in Jesus Christ as Peter cried out and called Him the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for this time that we could set apart to read Your Word, to worship You, to give You praise and glory. Lord, I pray this morning that there are any hearts that don't know You, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that God, You will draw them to You. Lord, I pray that there's anybody here this morning who's just in a season of despair, who just needs You, who feels overwhelmed and overcome by their sin right now. I pray, Lord, they cry out, they repent, but they put their trust in You. Lord, I pray that they can not shy away from the cross, not be embarrassed by it, but run and cling to it. That at the cross, You put to death all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame, and the penalty that our, death has give, uh, that our sin has given us, which is death. So Jesus, we praise You this morning as the Holy One of God, as our Lord and our, as, as our Savior, as the One who gives us life. I pray, Lord, that we do include You. We pray to You in every decision we make. That we don't just treat You as, as, as season and sprinkle You on top, but rather we abide in You. That we remain in You and You in us. Lord, I pray that even as we sing our last song together, as we continue and end our worship service, I pray that we can leave here empowered by Your Word, encouraged by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Help us to remember how much You love us each day. And the call is to go and share that love to the world and to everyone around us. So Jesus, we love You and it's in Your name we pray. Amen.